There's marital divorce, there's business divorce, and then there's marital business divorce. Hello and welcome to the Business Divorce Roundtable. I'm Peter Mahler, business divorce lawyer and partner at Farrell Fritz in New York City. In this episode, I'll be talking with attorney Lad Hirsch about the double whammy of a business divorce wrapped inside a marital divorce, that is, whether, when, and how to separate the joint ownership of business interests of spouses who are ending their marriage and quite likely also caught up in disputes over child custody, support, and other emotional, highly divisive issues. Ladd is an experienced trial attorney and litigation partner with the Diamond McCarthy Law Firm, resident in its Dallas office, where he focuses his practice on complex business litigation and arbitration proceedings. Our mutual interest in business divorce matters drew us together four or five years ago, but it's only recently I learned from some articles he wrote for his Texas Business Divorce blog, that's txbusinessdivorce.com, that Ladd has developed an expertise and subspecialty of counseling high net worth clients who are caught up in marital divorce proceedings and need help unraveling their co-owned business interests. And let me tell you, I've learned from Ladd that there's a lot more to it than you might think, and that counter to conventional wisdom, in many instances it can make more sense for the divorcing couple to maintain joint ownership for some period of time post-divorce before one of them sells out to the other or they sell the business together. But as you'll also hear from Ladd in this interview, achieving that objective for the mutual benefit of both spouses requires a collaborative approach and careful planning. I hope you enjoy and learn from the interview, so let's get started. Lad Hirsch, welcome to the Business Divorce Roundtable. Thanks, Peter. It's really good to be here. This is my first podcast, and I'm looking forward to it. I hope it's not your last podcast either, Lad. Uh, I always enjoy talking with other business divorce lawyers, and you're the only business divorce lawyer I know from Texas. My, I have this New York bias about things being done slightly different in Texas in things legal and not, and otherwise. We've known each other for four or five years, Lad, uh, through our mutual interest and practice in business divorce law. But it's only recently, Lad, that I think through coming across one or more of your blog posts, and you have a wonderful blog called Texas Business Divorce, correct? Yes, sir. I saw that you have sort of what I think of as a subspecialty of business divorce, which is business divorce in the matrimonial setting, which really sort of blew me away because that's not something I've ever encountered in any serious way in my many years of doing business divorce, where I've always thought of those issues as purely matrimonial issues dealt with by matrimonial lawyers. So I was very intrigued at the idea that you, as a business lawyer, are dealing with business divorce involving couples that are in the process of a divorce. And in one of your blog posts, it starts out with a really neat statement that captured my, what you call here, conventional understanding. And I'm going to read the, the introduction to that blog post. In the case of divorce, conventional wisdom holds that the divorcing couple must divide all of their assets at the time of divorce. When the couple owns a business together, however, splitting up their business in the divorce proceeding often leads to intense disputes 
over the value of the business, the management of the company, and the handling of key employees. Therefore, one approach the divorcing couple may want to consider to avoid or lessen conflicts between them is to agree to remain co-owners of the business for some period of time after their divorce is final. And Lad, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. And I have to say, that is exactly what I would have thought. The idea that divorcing couples could stay in business together seems counterintuitive to me. Tell us why my intuition is wrong. Well, Peter, first of all, thanks again for the opportunity to visit with you. You and I have been practicing uh, for a long time, I think about the same length of time. And like you, I didn't set out to work in the matrimonial area and didn't see my practice as being in that area, but a friend and someone in the marketing area suggested that I consider this about six, seven years ago, and it has now become a very significant area of our practice. And I think it's because we all become sort of creatures of habit, and we tend to look at things through the same prism. And family lawyers, no different than other litigators or business lawyers, tend to see things the same way. And I think that family lawyers generically tend to have a view of a divorce as a liquidity event, that at the time of the divorce, Couples are going to go their separate ways and all assets between them, not necessarily everything they own shall be liquidated, but there is a liquidity event where they have to separate and maybe call it a monetization event. Everything has to be monetized on the time or at the time of the divorce. Well, that from a business perspective is really not conducive to a win-win resolution. And that really is the value add that we have brought in our practice in the family matrimonial area. We are not matrimonial lawyers. Our approach and our value add here is that we look at a divorce as what is the win-win situation. As you and I know in litigation, litigation tends to be a zero-sum game. There is a winner and there's a loser. In the divorce context, the outcome is known ahead of time, meaning that we know at the time the divorce is filed, there's going to be a resolution in the sense that there will be a divorce. This couple will go their separate ways. What isn't known, however, is how the assets held in the marital estate will be divided. So we come in and we look at it and we say, what makes the most sense for both parties? We're not representing both parties. We're not mediators. We represent one of the two parties in the divorce, but we really focus in on what are the business objectives from both sides, what's a win-win from a business perspective, or stated another way, how do you optimize value for both parties in the business divorce? And our orientation from that perspective allows us to suggest solutions, to suggest alternatives, to provide options that may not have otherwise been considered by a family lawyer who is looking at this as a liquidity event or a day to monetize the assets for both for both parties in the divorce. It reminds me in some ways of a, of a mediation approach, which suggests that it also requires the same motivation and desire for cooperation on, on both sides. Well, it's interesting you should ask that. Just coincidentally, today I had lunch with a family law, very senior family law lawyer who I've not had the uh, opportunity to work with in the past. And he has a couple of cases that we're talking about potentially helping with. And we talk about that. And I explained to him that our experience now over the past five or six years is that our involvement in family law matters tends to lessen the tension and lessen the conflict because we are providing avenues or off-ramps, if you will, that they haven't considered before. We're bringing new solutions, new ideas. If the couple really is intensely unhappy with each other and wants to do battle in court and are not looking for a resolution, we really aren't the right lawyers to, to bring into the dispute. It's where the couple reached a point of saying, look, we do want a divorce. We do want to go our separate ways. 
but what's the best way to do that from a business perspective? And, and, and when they have that attitude and their lawyers are facilitating that, yes, it ha- we are essentially not a mediation per se, but we are in, in a settlement counsel role. And so we do say that. We, we are sort of settlement counsel in the sense of coming in, but we're not representing both sides. We're not neutral. We, we are advocates for one side. But if you don't recognize the business objectives of your adversary on the other side, you're not going to get a, to a resolution. So what are the situations in which business divorces take place in the marital context? There are really three, and then we can drill down into to those more specifics. But there are three sort of concepts or three situations that we see. One is that the couple co-owns an interest in a family business that they are running. So there may be other owners in the business as well, but essentially the husband and wife have a majority ownership interest in the business. Now, the wife doesn't have to be, or the husband, but neither spouse has to be Uh, both active in the business. Only one of them can be in the business. Sometimes it's both, but it is a business in which the couple have a majority ownership interest. The second is where they uh, have a co-ownership interest in a, as a minority investment. They are not the majority owner in the business. They have a minority stake in the business. And then the other situation is one where there's really sort of one of the couple is a sole proprietor in Texas, which as you know, is different than New York. Texas is a community property state. So legally, the wife has an equitable ownership interest in the business or the husband if they're not the sole owner. But the third situation is one where they're not really co-owning it, if you will, but there's a one spouse is a sole proprietor situation. In New York, I notice just as a casual observer that so many of the disputed matrimonial cases, and particularly valuation disputes, involve professional practices. Do professional practices fit in within one of those scenarios? Sure. Um, although there's a, a doctrine in Texas, this is one of the the avenues and roads we can go down. For Texas practitioners, they're going to be familiar with a case called the Van Hone case. Without getting into a lot of detail, Van Hone involved a lawyer who was a contingency fee lawyer. And the valuation of the law firm was overturned on appeal because the appellate court held that the valuation expert had relied upon future earnings of the law firm. And you're not allowed to consider future earnings in the divorce context. And had also uh, not taken into account the fact that the earnings of a contingency law firm are speculative and not known. And so, therefore, that the large valuation assigned to the law firm was overturned. Now, there's been a number of articles written since then, so I don't want to suggest that personal service businesses have no value or, or, or better stated that the partnership interest in a personal service business has no value, but it's certainly one of the, uh, let's call it cutting edge issues is, well, what is the value of a partnership interest in a personal service business, particularly in a law firm type that is a contingency fee law firm? So what is the role of the business divorce lawyer in the matrimonial setting? And and before you answer, again, I, I can't help but comment that in New York, rarely do I see a true collaboration or intersection of business law specialists or commercial law specialists, which I sort of business, I think of business divorce as a subset of, and the matrimonial bar. My understanding here in New York, anyway, is that the matrimonial bar really handles these cases soup to nuts. And you're suggesting a very different arrangement, a collaboration, as I say, between matrimonial lawyers and business lawyers like yourself. What is your role in a matrimonial? How does it you know, differ from the role of the matrimonial lawyer? Great question. I think the first, there has to be a qualifier here, which is uh, most matrimonial cases really would not be appropriate for us to be involved in for the simple reason that uh, if there's not substantial assets held in private companies, we probably don't have a lot of value add that we can bring to the table. 
So even in a high net worth couple, if their assets are fairly liquid, they have assets in bank accounts, they have assets that are in real estate, that's that values are recognized and, and appraisals are easily done. If you're leaving, no, and there are no significant investments in privately held businesses, probably there's not a lot there for us to do and, and the family lawyers really don't need any assistance. It's only in situations that tend to be higher net worth couples, number one, and where a substantial portion of the net worth of the couple is in assets that are a private company nature, either wholly owning it or majority owning it, or they have a substantial investment. Why is that the case? Because, as you know, well, Peter, in a privately held company situation, valuation is the number one thing couples fight about in high-end marital divorces because the valuation of a privately held interest is so contentious. And so if you're not going to reach resolution on what the value is of a privately held interest, you're going to have a, a very significant valuation fight and a lot of discovery about that company. What are its assets? What are its revenues? And there'll be two competing experts who are business valuation experts who come in and fight about that. The value that we add to the and, and being part of the team is we come in and say, well, rather than going through that very expensive, protracted fight over valuation, which will prolong your divorce, maybe there's an off-ramp here that will get the divorce resolved more promptly, more efficiently, with less acrimony. And so what do we do? Well, we come in and our role is to say, well, let's first evaluate this as, well, maybe the couple shouldn't result in a liquidity event. Maybe the couple should continue to co-own assets together. Maybe they should continue to be co-owners in this business together. That, as you can appreciate, raises a whole host of problems. You alluded to it when you read our introduction to a blog post, but we're avoiding problems and, and taking on another set of problems, but not having to sell interests you can avoid evaluation if you continue to co-own it because there's no need to have it valued. And so maybe not forcing a sale, if you will, or forcing a transfer, if you will, at the time of the divorce is one avenue. Another way to do it is, it depends on the business objectives, is to go ahead and allow the transfer to take place, but to give the spouse who doesn't continue to be an owner a right, if you will, to receive some benefit post-divorce in the appreciation of the asset that they no longer own. It wouldn't be through an equitable ownership situation, but a contractual situation, meaning we are going to say that if the business is sold in the next five years or 10 years, you get some additional money, or you're going to receive on a contract basis some additional amount paid to you based upon the company's either revenues or its value or its dividends. Even though you're no longer an equitable owner, you're going to continue to receive some benefits. So you're giving the spouse who no longer owns an interest in the business continued ability to get cash flow, if you will, out of that business and potentially an additional bump upon a liquidity event when the business is ultimately sold or merged or something like that takes place. So it's a way of creating an economic alternative to a transfer of the interest or accepting a transfer but continuing to allow continuing benefits from the previous ownership in the entity. You've been describing a lawyer who is a peacemaker and a deal maker. Are there also times as a business divorce lawyer who's now involved in a matrimonial case where you have to strap on the armor and, and go to court? Sure. And we can be helpful to the lawyers in that in a, in a different context. We have been involved in cases where we go on the pleadings, if you will, and we enter an appearance in the case. That's not the norm. No, more normally, where you're involved in settlement. But because our practice outside of family law, as you know, involves litigation, 
involves uh, contested disputes over ownership interests. We obviously are litigators. I've been a litigator for more than 30 years in business disputes of a wide variety of which business divorces are only a part. In the mayoral context, there are occasions where we get involved in issues. Typically what will happen is one of the spouses in Texas, I don't know that in New York, Peter, why don't we talk about this in your, in your practice, but in our practice, typically the wealth generator in these divorces is the husband. Certainly there are situations where women are the wealth generator, but in the, most of the cases I've been involved in, the wealth generator is the husband. And a dispute arises because the husband says something to the effect of, or his position is, I'm not going to allow the wife to continue to be a co-owner. No interest in that. I want to keep the business. And oh, by the way, I think the business is worth a lot less than what we believe it to be. So you can go to court and just have a trial over whether he's right or she's right on the value of the business, or you can engage in various litigation alternatives or various litigation strategies, is what I should say, to test that theory. So it isn't automatic that merely because the husband has been running the company that the court is going to decide to award him the company. Um, the court has the ability to appoint a receiver over assets in the marital estate, and it's a little different. We've written another article or another blog post on receiverships in family law on our blog, and that actually has been one of our most popular blog posts in the family bar on receiverships, and we wrote an article about it in a newsletter as well, because the standard for getting a receiver in a family law context, I don't know if the word easier is the right word, but perhaps less stringent. The courts of family law, we should start with this, are courts of equity, unlike courts of law, where you and I are, are more accustomed to. And so in a court of equity, the court may believe it is appropriate to appoint a receiver because at the end of the day, the court is trying to achieve a just and right and fair division of assets in the marital estate. And the court may feel like if the husband's engaged in improper conduct in the course of the marital proceeding and discovery, etc., the court may say, I've had enough. I'm appointing a receiver because I want this company to be run in a way to ensure that there's a division of assets. And merely the threat of a receiver being appointed may have leverage that it provides to the spouse who's not uh, running the business. So appointment of a receiver or seeking a receiver is one strategy that, that may be considered. Another is, um, as I started to allude earlier, is, is to, to make a concerted attempt to say, look, he thinks, if, if the husband really comes in and says, well, I think the value is really low. And so the husband thinks, I'm going to keep the company, number one, and number two, I'm going to keep the company for a low ball valuation. The wife can challenge that and can say, well, he's bluffing. I'm putting a team together, and I'll, I'll agree to allow that to be the valuation, but I want to take over the company, and I've got my team now that will help me take over the company for that value. And if she demonstrates to the husband that, in fact, she now has a team assembled, whether it's a new CFO, a new CEO, a new management team, a new outside accounting team, that she's ready to take over this company and she wants it for that value, now he may realize, wait a minute, I could end up losing my company and I'm going to lose it to her for a value that I, I know is not really the, the appropriate value. And if, if, he, if he's worried about that, maybe he gets more realistic at that point and decides that's really not a good strategy and we get him to the, to the table and work out a more reasonable division of what assets and values should be. Yeah, that's a very interesting uh, observation. And, and it also is not that much different than the dynamic that also occurs in business divorces having nothing to do with uh, marital relationships. Just even in business divorces between unrelated owners, you see that happen quite a lot where an offer is made and the other side essentially calls the bluff and says, if that's what you think it's worth, I'll I'll buy you out for that uh, plus a dollar or two. So it works in both contexts, it sounds like. Absolutely. The last one I was going to mention is dissolution. 
The court can order that the company be sold in the divorce context. That's another threat to a majority owner husband who intends to keep the asset and keep it or keep the business for a lowball number. The court may say, look, rather than have this valuation fight, I'm just going to award, uh, order that the business be sold. And if that happens, again, the husband's not, it sort of accomplishes the same result. Well, wait a minute. Before you let it be sold and I, and I end up losing my business and I don't get it the value I went for it, well, maybe I'm willing to let the, uh, and, and credit the value at a more real world, more fair market value and allow the wife to have an interest in it. And, the, and one of the problems, Peter, here may be that the husband's view of the world is, well, I'll, I'll be willing to acknowledge that the wife is entitled to a greater value in the business as long as I don't have to pay it now. I mean, because money now is different than money later. And maybe he's like, well, I'll agree and I'll acknowledge that the value is here, but I, I don't want the obligation to go and have to get a, a, a large loan and put leverage on the business. Maybe the answer to all of this is I'm acknowledging what the value is, but she's going to have to take back a note. There's some, some other structured payment. So it's not the value any longer. Now it's, it's a realizing that value. Let me see if I understand this. In Texas, a family court judge can order the sale of, let's say, an operating business, a sales business of some sort that's owned either 100% by husband, 0% wife, or vice versa, or 50-50, can order the sale of that business without yes. without dis the dissolution and sale of that business, not under the standard dissolution statutes in Texas, assuming there are some, but simply as a matter of their equitable powers. The short answer to your question is yes, there are a number of caveats to that, number one. And number two, I would say it is not the norm. I don't want to suggest and have you, <laughs> I know you're, you're centered in New York and the East Coast. Oh my gosh, Texas family lawyers, our family law judges are just ordering sales of business. It's not the norm. It doesn't happen very often. But under certain circumstances, yes, is the, and under certain caveats, yes. I mean, you, you'd have to have the court, because the court doesn't want to, let's be clear, the court doesn't want to do something that puts people out of business, that doesn't realize value for the business. The court would have to believe that the sale and the ordered forced sale of the business is the way to accomplish a just, fair, equitable division of assets, and that other lesser remedies would not achieve that same result. So counter to the conventional wisdom, what you try and do under the right circumstances is to structure a settlement where the divorcing couple continue to co-own a business, whether it's you know a controlling interest or a minority interest, for some period of time after they're divorced. What what are the benefits of that to the divorcing couple? I'm, I want to answer that, but I do want to make sure that we leave time to talk about what we need to do to make sure that we accomplish that and what is the end goal, because I've had someone say to me, well, aren't you kicking the can down the road? And the answer to that I've answered was absolutely, but the can stops at some point. So I want to make sure we talk about well, what happens after the can stops, meaning that it's not a co-ownership that's indefinite. There's going to be a, an end point. Yeah, and so the benefits accrue both based on the co-ownership for some defined period of time and then for the planned division of the assets at a later time. Correct. The, the benefits are, and putting on our business hat, they're pretty pretty common sense, there's greater appreciation. I mean, for example, in Texas, as you well know now, we're going through oil being, pun intended, at the bottom of the barrel. Hopefully we've hit the low and we're now going to be trending back higher. But if you own an interest in an oil and gas production company now, this may not be the time for an optimal sale. And so by allowing for the monetization of this ownership interest to take place at some point in the future when oil prices have uh, not just stabilized but started increasing, there's a, a significant chance for appreciation. So that's the, one of the main reasons is 
I don't want to take a lowball number. Now is not a good time for a sale, so why would I want to be bought out of an interest now at the bottom? I want to be bought out at the top. So it allows for uh, appreciation in the value of the asset. Uh, number two is that the wife or the husband may care about employees, and if the sale takes place now, it may cause disruption in the business. That's unpleasant and unnecessary. Why not just keep things the way that they are? That may mean that the husband and wife continue to stay active in the business. And I have a situation where the wife is the salesperson and the husband is the CEO, and she actually adds value and he adds value. They don't get along, but they each provide a significant role in the business. Why force one to leave? Now you got to go find a new salesperson, or in the husband's case, you got to go find a new CEO. So why do that? So allow basically the stability and the, and the going concern value of the business to continue to operate it as it been. So that's another reason. A third reason is, is that a number of companies throw off cash. There's a current return or cash flow. And if you sell the business now or you get a value for it now, yes, you get a pot of cash or a, a monetization, if you will, but you don't get that continued annual amount of revenue of dividends that are thrown off every year. So in the case of, let's say, if the, the company, what it is, is it, it holds real estate. And so there's payments every year that are the uh, excess amount, profits on the, on the real estate holdings. Why would you want to give up an annual, essentially, an annuity that, that, that exists every year? So there, there may not be other investments that are having as great a return every year. Let's say you get 8% and you're getting 8% on investment. It's tough to go out into the market now and find another investment that's going to get you an 8% return, right? So it's a good investment. Why do I want to give up an income-producing investment? That's another reason not to, to sell. So a couple is divorcing, which certainly suggests hostilities, antagonisms, issues that may go far beyond the business into family issues, you know, child issues, etc. So I imagine that even more so than in a non-marital context, there must be a lot of issues that you're going to have to address in any sort of a settlement agreement to deal with the relationship during the post-divorce period of co-ownership. What are those issues you have to deal with? Sure. Let me just say this. I, in my marital practice in the business divorce context do not deal with any parent-child issues. So the most emotional issues in the divorce are ones that deal with custody and things like that, which I am not helping with. On the business side, our, as I said, I think earlier, our involvement tends to ratchet down the tension to lessen the conflict because we are solution-oriented and we are providing solutions. But your point really is, well, lad, there's a whole lot of trust or lack of trust here. What do you need to deal with? The fact that there's a lack of trust actually helps us. And I, let me explain why. So let's take a situation where the husband is running the business and the wife's going to stay in as a silent partner, if you will, but she's going to continue to have an ownership interest in the business. Because she doesn't trust him, she's going to want a lot of protections. But what does he want? Because I said we have to start at the beginning and say, well, what does he really want? What do both sides want? What's their objective? He wants to main control of this business. He does not want his ex-wife coming in and dictating to him how to manage the business. So he really wants control. But he understands that she doesn't trust him. So because he understands that she doesn't trust him, but he wants control and she's willing to let him have control under certain parameters, that allows us to put a lot of protective measures in place, which he will accept in order to continue to maintain control. 
So, for example, the main ones are, number one, she doesn't want to have her ownership interest diluted. So she's a 30% owner. She wants to make sure that she's going to stay a 30% owner during the period of time that they continue to be a co-owner. Number two, these are passed through entities for the most part, which means taxes are paid by the owners. She wants to make sure that to the extent that the entity is profitable, and now that means she has to pay taxes on her 30% ownership interest, that there's going to be a distribution at a minimum that is sufficient to cover her tax liability. There are times where the company has to have capital calls, which is additional investments in the business. Well, she doesn't want to take money. She's just gotten in a divorce. And if she doesn't have the earning capacity that her husband does, she doesn't want to be subject to capital calls. So we've got to make sure that if there is any future capital call, the husband will agree to cover all future capital calls without diluting her interest in the business. He'll get a return. Essentially, he's making a loan to the business and he'll get a payment on his loan, but she's not going to have to pay any or, or provide any additional capital and make any additional capital investment in the event that there's a capital call. And she wants to make sure that he doesn't enrich himself, that they get to be treated fairly. So he can't increase his compensation. He can't give himself any bonuses. He can't take any distributions unless she gets her pro rata share of distributions. And then it's really important that we have transparency going forward. Transparency in a couple of different ways, at least. Number one is the company's going to have to make regular, detailed financial reports by an outside audit firm so that so that there's a, an independent third party who's running a check on what's happening, number one. And number two, she should be able to have access online to, ish, to things that are happening within the company. So she can check bank accounts. She can look at expense ledgers, things that she can't affect, but she can look at online so that she sees regular reporting or her advisors do to make sure that there's nothing untoward that's happening within the company. And all of that will be put in place, which then leads us to the point we spoke of a moment ago, which is, okay, so how long is this interim period going to be and how do you ultimately have a resolution of this ownership? And that's where you get into buy-sell agreements? Exactly. And so... At the time of the divorce, we negotiate. Um, it's not, you, you used a term about, a de, I think you said something about being a definite uh, uh, time frame. We don't advocate for a definite time frame. What we do is we give each side a right to have a put or a redemption. In the case of the husband, if he's the income generator and he's the one who's running the company, he's in control, he has the right in some period of time, it's negotiable, but let's say in three years, if we use three years, in three years, he has the option, it's not mandatory, to buy out her minority interest, he can buy out in three years. By the same token, in three years, she has a redemption right, she can, or a put right, she can put her interest back to him, so that at the end of three years, either side can trigger a right to be bought out, and at the time of the divorce, we have to negotiate a valuation formula. So we put in something very specific in place that's a measure, and it is not easy to get done, but you can get it done. It's easier to put a formula in place than to actually go fight over valuation. So we put a formula in place for how we're going to value this. If either side exercises their right to have a buyout in three years or four years, whatever it is, that there's a valuation formula that they'll apply with a dispute resolution procedure included as part of that so that either side can leave or redeem the other at that time. And I suppose you'll have to also include the terms, whether it's a long-term or short-term payout, security, and all the usual bells and whistles that accompany a buyout. Absolutely. 
Good. So I think you've already talked about some of the advantages of, of maintaining co-ownership for some period. I did read also in your blog an interesting point, not surprising, which is that there are always, as in any transaction involving business owners and, and transfers of interest, there are always tax issues. And you made a really interesting point in that same blog post. Let me just read a little bit from it. You were talking about after the divorce is final and down the road a few years, they may want to, at that point in time, separate their business interests. And you write, quote, if the couple did not plan ahead for this business divorce, however, they may be unhappily surprised to find that the IRS is now seeking to collect a sizable tax bill based on the profits realized from the, quote, sale, close quote, of the business interest from one spouse to the other. I'd love to hear you explain what what that's about. Well, we were uh, commenting in our blog post on a case earlier this year called BELO, B-E-L-O-T, versus the commissioner of the IRS. Uh, It's a June 2016 U.S. tax court decision. That was a case in which the transaction between the husband and former husband and wife, so after their divorce, about 18 months after the divorce, there was a transaction that took place and the IRS was taking the position that this was a taxable event. In the marital context, transfers between spouses that take place at the time of the divorce are not taxable. However, if if you're talking about, as we just were, that the tax, excuse me, that the transaction takes place 18 months, two years, three years later, you run into a problem or a potential problem that the IRS will construe this as not being uh, in connection with the divorce, and therefore it is a taxable event. And we're talking, so, uh, lad, we're talking about gains taxes, yes? Yes. Okay. Yes. Yes. That that, that that it's a it's a transaction in which a sa- they're viewing it as a sale as opposed to a transfer between spouses. And so, in a sale, if there's a capital gain and the business is worth more than what it was when the couple originated the business or bought into the business during their marriage then there has to be a tax on a capital gains tax on the transfer. So the the takeaway on this case is if it is in their best interest to not cause at the time of the divorce a complete separation and if they're agreeing that a co-ownership is in their mutual best interest from a business perspective, they need to be careful that when they structure the sale, they're making it clear that it is in connection with a part of and doing all that they can to make sure that it is part and parcel of their marital divorce and and their lawyers want to make sure that they take care to, to, to do that in a way to ensure that the IRS construes this as being a marital change, even though it's after the marriage. So does that require special drafting both at the time of the divorce when you're structuring the continued ownership period, perhaps followed by a separation, and also at that eventual separation of the interests? I don't think it's as nearly as important at the time of the at the time of the redemption, if you will, three years, two years, whenever it is. It's much more important that you have special language at the time of this drafting because the key is to show that it is quote unquote incident to a divorce. So if the IRS says, wait a minute, this is taking place three years later, how could this be incident to a divorce? Well, I think you can get around that if you can show how in doing this that, for example, what you'd want to structure and make sure you say is that this uh, allows for a deferred payment. You can use language to show that it's in connection with the divorce, that this is a payment that's being deferred, and use language to show that this, notwithstanding the fact that it's taking place a number of years after the divorce, that the transaction that takes place is still incident to the divorce. Is there some sort of a safe harbor time period within which the post-divorce separation can take place without IRS scrutiny? Uh, Six years under the IRS. 
So if you're, I don't know that you could make anything that would last longer than six years survive IRS challenge. If you're within six years, you should be able to be able to do that. I want to get back to, and you did talk a little bit about this before. I'd, I'd love to hear some more on the litigation strategies that you might have to resort to in the context of a marital business divorce. Well, I think the only one we really didn't talk about was valuation and how you go about getting a valuation in terms of a strategy. So this is a situation where the couple is going to have a valuation fight. And so the question is, okay, well, what do we do other than just merely hiring experts to come in and value it? In that context, the notion would be that the valuation is not accurate because the husband, if this is the facts scenario, has been running the business and he has been engaging in improper conduct to diminish the value of the business in order to essentially take over the business for a lower amount. What this all means is that you need to hire, in addition to a valuation expert, a forensic expert to come in and forensically look at what the husband has done and how the husband has managed this company to find out whether the husband has essentially artificially depressed the value um, and so that that would require the financial statements to be restated so that the company has a more true fair market value, not a depressed value, because the husband is engaged in conduct to keep the value low for this exact reason. The husband has been anticipating a divorce, wants to keep the value low, and therefore has engaged in a number of of things that really don't reflect a true value of the company. So coming in and just doing a standard valuation isn't really the right way to go about it. You've got to take the approach that the valuation is going to be off if we don't do this forensic audit or forensic examination uh, beforehand to make sure that we end up with a valuation that's a real-world valuation. You know, in New York, I'm aware that whereas in my neck of the woods, we deal with statutory fair value of the business, which essentially means fair market value without any consideration of a minority discount. On the matrimonial side in valuation contests, it's it's just straight fair market value where the court, the, the experts will also consider minority as well as marketability and other discounts. In Texas, in the kinds of matters you're talking about, what is the standard of, of valuation? I'm not familiar with the court uh, applying standards of discounted value unless you're looking at a minority interest. But if the, so, I mean, it depends on the situation. If the husband and wife own the business together in its entirety, you're not going to have any minority discount. If their ownership interest in the business is, let's say, they own a third of it, so they own a minority interest, then sure, the value of their joint interest will be a subject to, a, likely, subject to a discounted value. Sounds like fair market value. Right. Lad, what are the main takeaways you can offer to listeners in this area of marital business divorce? I think the main one, repeating what we've said earlier, is that looking at the divorce as an opportunity not to just separate two owners, but to optimize the value. What would maximize value for both parties in this situation? And if we approach it with that mindset, it opens the door to consideration of other options and alternatives that would be mutually in their best interest. So that's the first thing is approach it not as just a separation, but as an optimization of value. What, what works best? And that requires a, a set of different questions. It depends on what's in the marital estate. I mean, it may be that you have very little liquidity. This may be a very wealthy couple. I mean, they may have $40, $50 million of value. But if all of their value is tied up in a business, and it's one or the majority in that one business, 
and that business doesn't have the liquidity to, to pay one spouse 20 or 30 million, that's a challenge that you have to because there's there's just not the money there to give the spouses each one has an ownership interest and to give the other spouse a cash equivalent. So you're going to have to come up with strategies that are going to make that couple whole, if you will, or each side gets a fair value. So you have to look at, well, what each divorce is different. There's no cookie cutter here. It's how what, what optimizes value and then what are the objectives that each couple, each party has. Some spouses will want, I just want cash. I really just want cash, as much cash as I can. I don't really want to have a significant co-ownership. Others are, I don't need a lot of cash because I'm going to, I have a, a career of my own and I, I have cash flow. I don't need a lot of cash. I want to just make sure I maximize and optimize the value down the road when there's a liquidity event. So, you know, it's like any investor. Every When, when you talk to a wealth manager or a financial advisor, they say to you, I want to know something about your risk tolerance, right? If you have someone who has a high risk tolerance, that will lead to a different set of investments. If someone has a very low risk tolerance, that's going to lead to a different set. So when in looking at what each couple wants to achieve financially in their divorce, you've got to look at what their risk tolerance is, what their desires are, and then what the assets are to try to achieve that. Lad, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. And, and I have to say, I always think of what I consider regular business divorce as a, as a high challenge area because the, the parties involved bring so much emotion to the, to the issue and, and don't always think in, um, you know, sometimes the emotions cloud the, you know, better business judgment. And if someone says to me, well, how about a marital business divorce? I mean, I'm thinking this is a business divorce on steroids, that it would just be an even more in emotionally intense situation. So it's really enlightening to listen to you talk about how in such a, a, a high emotion setting that, that as a lawyer, you can bring some sense uh, and, and good solutions to what must be a very, very challenging and difficult situation. Well, it's nice of you to say. I will say this, I, I really do feel like for me, it's a calling. Uh, one of the things I like, particularly in the marital context, is that the folks I'm dealing with tend to be not that sophisticated on financial matters. These are bright people, very capable people, but they don't have the same level of business knowledge and experience. And so it's really rewarding, Peter, to help educate someone about their own financial future and see them start to have an understanding and take ownership of what they're doing and it's very gratifying that and and they appreciate very much what you're doing for them so in terms of a lawyer and feeling rewarded by what you do it, it feels very good to have someone who you help them reach both an uh, understanding intellectually and also financially to achieve what their objectives are it's a, it's a very satisfying thing to be doing and I, I feel it's very rewarding Lad, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me on the business divorce roundtable Thanks, Peter. I enjoyed my first podcast. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you'd like to learn more about marital business divorce, check out Lad's posts on his Texas Business Divorce blog. That's txbusinessdivorce.com. As for the non-marital variety, there's no better source of information than my New York Business Divorce blog. That's nybusinessdivorce.com, where I post a new article every Monday morning. While you're at it, why not subscribe to the blog? And if you like the podcast, subscribe to it as well on iTunes or SoundCloud and help spread the word by posting a review on iTunes. This is Peter Mahler. Thanks again for listening to the Business Divorce Roundtable.